<laughs> so good to see you. For the last six months, the eyes of the world have been fixed on a worldwide pandemic, and it's hit close to home. Our eyes have been glued to racial inequities that boiled over into riots in Europe and America. We've been unable to escape the political vitriol and the boiling hostility. Let's, let's be honest about it. So far, 2020 has been a train wreck of a year from a human point of view, and such a bad train wreck, it's been hard to look away. It's like a bad pileup on the freeway. We've just been gawking, been watching, and it's been impossible for us to almost put our eyes on anything else. And so we've been kind of wrangling over what to believe, who to believe, what to do, worrying about what it means, when will it end, will it, will it ever end? But if you recall, before we went out on the roof, we were in a series of messages in the book of Revelation, and we were calling this series Letters from Jesus because we were focusing on chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the churches. And if you remember the backstory of that, the backstory of that was that the Apostle John, who loved Jesus, who Jesus loved, had been suffering. He'd been exiled to the Isle of Patmos in the Aegean. And when he was exiled there, what happened to him that was recorded in the Bible? He had a vision. And it wasn't a vision of the chaos in the world around him. It was a vision of the risen Son of Man. And that, and that vision of Jesus was recorded, and then there was a, remember this? There was a loud voice that said, write the vision and send it to the churches. And for thousands of years, the people of God have cherished reading about this vision of the risen Son of Man. And when other things have tempted them to capture their vision, they've had this vision of Jesus to look to. And every one of the churches in the letters that were given to the churches was reminded of a piece of that vision of Jesus. Remember Jesus. Look at Jesus. You have problems. There are problems all around you. But then there's the vision of the risen Son of Man in glory, Jesus. And I am of the conviction that what the church has needed then is what our church needs right now. We need to look away from the train wreck that has been 2020 and look again to a vision of Jesus. So let's take our Bibles and let's look at that vision in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white as wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the messengers from the churches, the seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, 
and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What would you do if you saw a vision like that? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades right there for the things you've seen. Those that are and those that are that take place after this. For as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels, the messengers of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Leaders of the church, elders of Bethel. Jesus, the Son of Man, the risen Son of Man, holds you in his hand. Elders of Bethel, bless you. Jesus holds you in his hand. How sweet is that? Church, Bethel Church, you have a lampstand given to you by Jesus, the risen Christ. You have a light to shine forth, and you've done that well. Even your presence today is moving. Even your willingness, your humility to try to do what you can do in order to gather together in worship is, a, is a, a testimony to your love for one another and to the Lord. And it blesses my heart. Bless you for being who you are. Bless you for being willing to come to the parking lot. Bless you for beeping the horn at the right time. Bless you for inviting your friends and for being willing to persevere and push through all the things that have come and bless you for suffering faithfully. And now we're in chapter 3, and we get to look at the next church, the church of Sardis. And it's really not a happy, it's not a happy story, but there's hope embedded in it. So let's now go to chapter 3, to the next church, the church of Sardis, and see what Jesus, the risen Christ, said to the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 is our text for today. And the and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars, which are the messengers to the churches. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are, you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear 
what the Spirit says to the churches. And now you notice, do you remember in each of the letters there's a pattern, there's a beautiful divine pattern. Do you remember this? You, you could say there are seven parts in, in, the, in almost every letter. It, it follows this. These seven different things are evident when, when you, you see it, that it begins with a greeting. And, and then there is uh, something that identifies Jesus. And then what the, usually what they did right, although in this case there's no commendation. And then what they did wrong, a condemnation, if you will. And then the, the fifth part would be a correction, what they should do about what's wrong. And then the, the, seventh, the, the, the sixth part, a warning or a threat or a warning about what happens if they don't correct. And then the seventh part would be a reward for overcoming. Notes for the message are online. If you like to look them up, you can. It might, for some of you, might be better just to listen, but they're there for you to refer back to, or you can actually take notes there if you like. Let's look at the first part, the greeting to the, to the angel, to the messenger of the church of Sardis. Uh, the angel, the, the word translated angel is the same word translated messenger. It may literally mean a, a heavenly angel. It might, it, it likely means the, the human messenger of, of the church, the one that was designated the elder or the lead elder or the, or the designee, the one who was designated. It's possible that there were seven leaders and they traveled along this postal route together and they, and they delivered these uh, messages to the churches. The messages obviously were given one to each individual church, but in every case it says, um, let, this, let the, the one hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So it was intended that all the churches read all the letters, and so we're, that's what we're doing now. And in the, the kingdom of, of Sardis, there was wealthy, uh, the capital of Lydia, the, 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 the king was Croesus. Maybe years ago people used to say, wealthy as Croesus. It was, a, it was a wealthy place. It's where they first minted gold and silver coins. And though, and though it seemed like it was, in, it was in, built in an impregnable place, a very safe place, 15 hundred feet high it fell twice to invaders and once to earthquakes and this is going to be a key thing later on as we study the city seemed like it couldn't fall but it did it had it fell to cyrus by the way in in, in just an aside it's interesting you know is the bible true sometimes people say how do i know the bible is true here's an interesting thing cyrus is identified as a leader of the Persian Empire in the Bible, 200 years before Persia is a world power. It's interesting. Um, so the city of Sardis was a was a award-winning city. It was an impregnable city, or was it was a wealthy city, but it fell, and eventually it fell into ruins in 1400, and wasn't discovered until its ruins weren't discovered until. 1958 there was much pagan worship in the city there were 25 to 30 sanctuaries or temples to pagan gods there was a huge temple to artemis still evident the largest synagogue in the ancient world was in sardis a synagogue uh, that would seat a thousand in sardis and this is a critical thing the synagogue still today shows a greek or 
Hellenistic or pagan influence. This isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. Um, it was built next very near to a gymnasium where nude athletic events and other pagan rituals took place. Again, evidence that the, 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 the synagogue was in compromise. And the church, probably a small church of 30 or 40 people meeting in the homes of wealthy members, was there's no mention of persecution in, in this time that's likely to indicate that it's because they had compromised their testimony or there would have been pressure uh, to, to compromise Christ. Let's see what Jesus has to say to Sardis. Again, watch for the seven things, the greeting, the identity of Jesus, the commendation, the condemnation, the correction, the warning, and the promise to, to overcomers. Notice the identity of Jesus, words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, holds the seven stars. There is only one Holy Spirit, but there are a number of times in Revelation the Holy Spirit is referred to as the sevenfold spirit. This sometimes Bible scholars connect this with an identity of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah chapter 11, where seven qualities of the Holy Spirit are, are given. But the idea is clearly the, the fullness of the Spirit. It's a reference to the sevenfold or the perfection or completion of the, of the Spirit of God. And, and you want to remember the many repetitions of seven in Revelation. And of course, the identity of the stars is clear. They are the messengers or the elders or the pastors of the seven churches. It, the, the Bible says in, in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life and the, the flesh profits nothing. And the words that I speak to you, they are spirit, they are life. This is, this is important. It is the spirit that gives life to us, spiritual life to us. It's the Holy Spirit who gives life to churches, without which there is no life in anything calling itself a church. It's important to remember this based on what's, what he's going to say. What did they do right? What commendation did they have? None. People were impressed with this church because the Bible says in a moment, you'll see you have a reputation, you have a, you have a name, but not, but not with God. So it is possible for a church to be considered successful to people and not considered successful to God. It would be possible for Bethel to be considered flourishing by people's measure, but not by God's. This is this very sobering thing. It should sober us as we, as we approach this. What did they do right? The Bible says nothing that they did right. What did they do wrong? What condemnation... Well, it says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Let's not rush too fast past the first two words. Jesus says to every church, I know. People say, I think, or I feel, or I think I know, but God really knows. And it's a good thing for us to think about when we evaluate even our own church, humbly evaluate our own church. This is what we think, but... God is the one who really knows the inner workings and the motives of the heart. God knows. And that's why we want to stay in fellowship with the Lord so the Lord can tell us what he knows that we might be confused about. And can we apply this as individuals too? 
you may think this about yourself. Others, you may have a reputation with other people, but you want to say to God, God, you tell me what's true about my church and you tell me what's true about me. You know, someday we will face God. And between now and then, it would be good for us all to frequently say, God, you reveal who I really am. You tell me who I am. And I will flee to the cross, you know, of course, over and over again. When people look at the church, what do they see? They see a flourishing church. When God looks at the church, what does he see? A dead church. 1 Samuel 16, 7. You remember this? The Lord says to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. Remember this? Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it will always be. Human beings can only evaluate what they see from the outside, and they have very little insight beyond that. God sees right into the depths of our own heart. So this is a good thing for us to soberly think about today. But why did that church seem alive then? Good evidence that the Lord saw the church as Sardis as dead for the same reason the church looked alive because she would not confess Christ's name, wouldn't openly confess the exclusive nature of who Jesus is. And that's the pressure that we feel in our culture today. Will we say Jesus is the only way to God, that Jesus himself is God? Outside of this building, do we confess that Christ alone is the only way to God? Well, when you do that, that might not be organizationally wise. It might not make you grow, you know, as an organization. It might make you shrink. It might be that the church of Sardis had a reputation for being alive because it compromised the name of Jesus, and there's internal and external evidence for that. The Roman symbols, the Hellenistic Greek influence in the synagogue, and the proximity of the synagogue to the gymnasium, is evidence of a compromised faith they had a great pressure to coexist bible says in revelation 11 12 11 they overcame him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony and they loved not their lives unto the death they they overcame him by their by the blood of the lamb that jesus died for them their testimony of belief in that and their willingness to die and this wasn't the case with the jews or the christians in sardis this great pressure to coexist, to tolerate, to incorporate the religious beliefs of others on, a, on an equal level with our own is a powerful pressure we have and our children, our grandchildren will have. Temptation to compromise, to retain organizational vitality. The world says, you're alive. Jesus says, you're not even a church. You don't even have a pulse. When a church gives into the pressure to accommodate to compromise when a church no longer confesses christ or teaches what the bible teaches or when a church begins to explain away the plain received teaching of the bible is dying even if it has large numbers and lots of money and big building it's dying god says it's not even not even a church he says uh, in another place i'll remove your candlestick I'll remove your charter to be a church and it is possible for a church to be considered a church by everyone around look like a church building have a pastor have a budget have programs and be dead and it's possible for a church to be dead because they compromise doctrinally 
But it's also possible for a church to be in dead orthodoxy, right? They didn't compromise doctrinally, but the, the doctrinally, they still say they believe all the right things, but the life has just gone out of it. And this is something that we ought to stop and soberly think about because this is one of the letters from the risen Jesus to the churches that all the churches should pay attention to. Like Samson, do you remember Samson? He, he was strong, and then finally the Spirit of God departed from him, and he, he rose up, and, and, and then he, the Bible says, it's one of the saddest phrases in the Bible, he didn't know that the Lord had departed from him. How sad would it be for a church to say, you know, Jesus, I left you a long time ago. You just kept going and doing things, but I left you a long time ago. I departed from you. God, never depart Bethel Church. God, please never depart. My dad has a funny way of naming things. I was enjoyed that about my dad. My grandpa did that. I do it. There was a, there was a bank in Vandalia, Ohio, where we lived for a long time. It's a big three-story, beautiful, it's still there, structure. I was going to speak at a camp in Kentucky a few years ago, and I, I stopped there, and I noticed the bank was still there. It, it had an abbreviated hours. Dad, it seemed like Dad said, whenever I stop there, the bank is closed. My dad started calling that the cardboard bank. Like, it's not even real. It's cardboard. Every time I see that, I remember, oh, that's the cardboard bank. And, and some of the most beautiful churches in the world are cardboard churches. They're not real. They're facade. And some Christians are... are professing Christians aren't, aren't really, don't really have, have life in them. I, I, I started a church with others. We, we started a church in, in Mount Vernon, Ohio. We, we were looking for a place to meet. It was, a, it was a genuine church. People that had gotten saved, people that really wanted to live for the Lord, new Christians that had come out of being lost and having their lives transformed. I can name their names. And, uh, Steve and Kathy Griffith one time visited the church and I said, if you'd like to talk about Jesus, ask for my card at the door. He asked for my card. I was sort of shocked at work. I'm like, oh. And I went over to his house, led him to the Lord. It wasn't even hard. God was at work. And Stephen Kathy Griffith, my daughter, went back to that church many years later. And they came up. Stephen Kathy Griffith came up to Holly and said, please tell your dad thank you for coming over and leading us to the Lord. I didn't really do anything. And God had prepared them. Their lives were completely changed. They still walk with the Lord. Mike and Vicki Kirby and their kids lived in a mobile home. They showed some interest. I went over to their home. I gave them the gospel. They weren't ready to receive Christ. They got into a small group. We met in a small group. They brought all their friends. They asked hard questions. They all came to know the Lord. They all were baptized. They all still walk with the Lord. But the building that we met in was a little old Grange Hall. It was so humble. I went by that not too long ago, a few months ago. It's still a little church there, but just very, very humble. Most people don't even know where it is. But God was there. It was alive. But I lived on the other side of town. I'd drive through town, downtown, past all the mainline churches that had the big stone buildings and lots of money. I happen to know some of the pastors of those churches weren't even converted. Didn't believe Jesus was God. Didn't believe the Bible was true. You, you probably know this. I don't want to shock you. But the truth of the matter is theological liberalism swept across America a number of years ago, and, the, and all of the mainline churches were pulled into theological liberalism, influenced by theological liberalism. Some of the denominations that were taken over by theological liberalism, pastors were placed 
that some of whom either tolerated those who didn't believe that Jesus was God or themselves didn't believe in salvation or the Bible was the word of God or and as a result of that there were groups within those denominations that came out of every one of those denominations or there was a fight in them like the Southern Baptist a great fight within the Southern Baptist denomination or group of the Southern Baptist churches for who, who would be in control and most of them groups had to come out and it was true in the Northern Baptist or the American Baptist now, our church was founded and affiliated with the conservative Baptist group which was a group that came out of the Northern Baptist Convention because of theological liberalism, because churches across America, thousands of them, died and now openly endorse things the Bible forbids. You can see it in our own town. They'll have a sign that says, don't put a period where God puts a comma. And I would just say, don't put a comma where God puts a period. You put a comma where God puts a period, you can call yourself a church, but you're dead. You're not really a church. You say, well, that's harsh. I'm just reading my Bible. When Jesus comes, he's the one who says whether a church has life or whether a church just has a name for life. He's the one who says whether a Christian really has life. This is a life and death thing. This is a heaven and hell matter. Your kids, your grandkids are going to go to these churches. Their life and their eternal life may well depend on this. This is a serious matter. We don't want to be a cardboard church. A dead church is unable to do what God intended for her to do. Unable to be a blessing. Unable to be a place of deliverance for people or a people of deliverance for people. No longer spiritually powerful. A church can't prepare your children to live in a world bent on sucking them into hell. A church that's no longer alive has no power, has no presence of Jesus, is no help. As a matter of fact, it's even more confusing because you have a veneer of religiosity that makes you feel secure when you shouldn't feel secure. A church should have evidence that there's the power of God on it. I heard a story about a pastor, uh, the pastor that founded the, the Calvary Chapel Church out in Huntington Harbor in California. He, he was on staff at, a, at another church there, and he felt like God was leading him to start this church in Huntington Harbor. So he and his wife, on their day off, would go to this, this uh, city in Huntington Harbor, and they would go, and they would walk the streets, and they would pray. They didn't talk, to, they didn't knock on doors, or they just walked the streets, and they prayed. And they begin to ask God, do you want us to go to this city? Do you want us to start a church? At the end of the regular service in their church that they attended, the pastor Chuck Smith, the founder of the Calvary Chapel movement there, the human founder, um, he would call, he would say, after the service was over, he would say, if you need prayer, uh, come forward and we'll pray with you. And, and, they, uh, and, and they were in the front, they were helping on the pastoral staff, and a lady came forward and her, her name was Vivian. And she said to, to the man, I, I want you to come to my home and visit me. And he said, well, let's just pray right here. She says, no, I, I feel like the Lord would have you come to my home. And, and he said, well, you know, I, I, he, he didn't feel like that was wise. He said, no. And, and so he pray, prayed with her there. A while later, he was back in, in Huntington Harbor, a, a, a bit of a distance away. He and his wife decided they would go and walk and pray. They decided they would knock on a door and that they would visit and they would invite people to a church that they might begin. The first door they knocked on, a lady came to the door. Guess who it was? Vivian. They were both shocked. They, she invited them in. He said, why did you want me to 
come to your house to pray? She said, because I feel like the Lord told me you were going to start a church here. Here's what I think about when I hear stories like that. Those are unusual things, but I think, God, give us the kind of church where things happen that our kids cannot deny the living God is there. Our grandkids would never deny God was there. God changed people's lives. And I will tell you something wonderful. If you'd like that to happen for your children or your grandchildren, you can make that happen with God's help yourself. You know how? You personally repent when God's Spirit speaks to you and they can see the miraculous work of God in your life. How often do people admit they're wrong? How often do people change? Can a leper change his spots, right? You confess Jesus in your life. You confess Jesus on your Facebook account. You're, I'm not talking about you tell me your political opinions. I'm so sick of reading people's political opinions. I want to throw up. I want to know, do you love Jesus Christ? Uh, is Jesus your king? Is it possible for people to know you and not know that you know Jesus? You know what my dad taught me? My dad taught me to lead people to Christ. He, he, was, he, said, that, he said, Ken, after you lead someone to Christ and you encourage them to pray, like a sinner's prayer, prayer of repentance, and, and he said, after that, always, this is my dad always taught me this, he said, always then, and my mother taught me this, always afterward, did anybody ever teach you this? What should you do then? The first thing is have them tell somebody that they now believe in Jesus. Have them go home and tell somebody, like the gathering demoniac. Go back home and tell everybody what happened to you. And my, my dad said that. I was at Xavier University. I think I was 10 years old. And I was visiting Xavier University with my dad, who was doing graduate work. And I gave the gospel to his roommate, a young college student. I'm a 10-year-old kid. He's probably patronizing me. Listen, I give him, I just take him through the gospel, and he, he gets his Bible out of a box in his closet, and he prays to receive Christ. And so I say to him, because I was kind of coached by my dad to do this, when my dad comes back to the room, tell him you're a follower of Jesus now. And I'm like, and it was my little 10-year-old mind. I'm thinking, you know, if he's just patronizing me, he won't, you know, he won't do that. My dad comes back to the room, and the first thing he says is, your son just led me to the Lord. Can I just tell you that that advice my dad gave me is such good biblical advice. Tell people you are a Jesus follower every day. Let them know. See what happens. Man up. Lady up. Be, be open that you're a, a follower of Jesus. Lots of cool things will start to happen. Do you have a life of God in you? Do we have a life of God in us? Let me belabor this a bit. Beyond organizational vitality, beyond, you know, how many people attend and how much money we gather, is, is there evidence of the life of God among us? Is there evidence that God is among us? Are lives changing? Are people tender to God? Are they open and repentant? Are we repentant? Is there life transformation? Are people being baptized? Is there a growing holiness among the members of the church? Do the young people, are there young people who are valiant for God? Is there a deeper confidence in the Bible? Is there a greater fidelity to the church of Jesus Christ? Isn't there enough evidence of the absence of that to drive all of us to our knees in repentance to God and prayer? God, please work among us. Work among our young people. Help us, God. 
I, I'm going to repeat a little story. A girl I met at Barakal, and, and I said to her, you remember this? I said to her, um, and I repeat it for a good reason. I said, I bet you hate camp coming to an end, and you have to go back to college, the secular university, Grand Valley State, over in Grand Rapids. You remember me telling you this? And she said, no, I'm looking forward to it. I'm like, why? She said, because I have such a powerful Christian ministry at Grand Valley that it's like revival when I get there. I'm like, oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for that. It's good news, right? You have a grandson that's there. That's good news. God is at work. He's at work around us. God, be at work here. What if every member after today just said, God, please let us never have a reputation for life that doesn't match the reality. Give us life. Give us spiritual life. Our elders meet every Saturday morning, and that's one of the things that we pray for. That's one of the things I put my hope in. The men of the church get up at 7 and voluntarily every Saturday morning, and they pray for you, and they pray that God will bless the church, and they ask for faithfulness. I, I think about that often, and I think, well, God, certainly you will bless that. Certainly you will hear our prayers, and you will be among us, and you will work among us. Well, how could we correct it? if that's not true or how can we make sure that is true that's the correction verses two and three wake up he says strengthen what remains that's about to die i've not found your works complete in the sight of god remember then what you received and heard keep it and repent these are five things wake up how did that city fall three times twice it fell because it was confident it was safe and they went to sleep that's why this would be a shocking thing for them to read happened at night a surprise a sudden attack it was devastating you will not know what hour he says and and sleep is good except when it's not right sometimes sleep is a gift from the lord for lo he gives his beloved sleep but sometimes sleep is a, there's a sleep of sloth a sleep of lust the sleep of indifference there's good sleep and there's bad sleep he's like wake up spiritually you need like a taser to your heart <laughs> wake up to what god you right now it would be good for every dad sitting here just to say okay god i hear what the pastor's saying he's reading from the bible if i need to be awakened in any area of my life wake me up god am i asleep to the truth that i have been mistreating my wife or not acting in 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 love toward her as i used to wake me up have I been like giving into lust and that's become just kind of a part of who I am secretly? God, put a taser in my heart and wake me up and frighten me and sober me. And, and, and this is what uh, he says, you can, you can wake up and then strengthen what remains. Anything that's not dead yet, put it on life support quick. Uh, I was supposed to water the flowers. Lois went out of town for a week once, and I was supposed to water the flowers. I forgot. And, um, and so I was out on the patio, and I looked, and the flowers were really dead. <laughs> it was a pot. It was just like drooped over. And I'm like, oh, my word. She's not going to be happy. She watered those all summer long, and they were so pretty. And now they just literally just drooped over the side of the pot. And I thought, well, I'll water them, even though they're dead, because that way when she says, did you water them, I can say, well, yes. And, you know, I was just late. They were impatience. I didn't know this. You, you, you that are good with growing things probably know impatience are pretty tolerant uh, of that. When, when I watered them and came out the next day, it was like, wow, it's like a miracle. They were like, oh, my word. They were live. They were beautiful. They were colorful. Oh, my word. I'm glad I did that. I told Lois, she said, yeah, 
You can do that with impatience. You can't do that with a lot of other stuff. This summer, she said, your tomatoes are dying. And they were looking horrible. They, they, uh, thank you, Pam, for the tomatoes. She gave me the plants. They were looking all wilted. And I'm like, she said, you didn't water them. I'm like, I water them every night. I guess you can overwater tomatoes. Did you know that? I'm just sharing. They look as dead when you overwater them as when you underwater them. So I got laid off for a while, and they came, they came back. My, my point is... When you have, it may very well look in your places in your life like things have died. God's saying, wake up and strengthen what remains. Water your life, see what happens. It's amazing what God can do if we'll humble ourselves. And then he says, remember, it's, the, it's like the apostolic doctrine, which is really interesting. In our time, there are, there are people who are false teachers who have a theory they call you ever heard this red letter Christians? It sounds good, but it's actually bad. You ever heard this? Anybody red letter Christians? Raise your hand. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? They're saying, oh, what they're kind of saying is this. Cherry pick the teachings of Jesus that seem nice. But, that, but when he meddles, you know, you can kind of leave that alone. And certainly the Apostle Paul can be set aside altogether. The Apostle Paul happens to have been an apostle. His doctrine was apostolic doctrine. And every time the Bible says go back and strengthen what remains, it says go back to the apostolic teaching. The whole teaching. So it, it's one thing to say, I don't believe the Bible's true, and I reject all of it. But, but a more subtle error and a more common one is to say, oh, yes, we have regard for the Bible, the basic general teaching of the Bible and Jesus, the things we like. But we just cherry pick what we like. We reinterpret what's a little bit. That's how churches die. That's how people die so remember the teaching all of it the scriptures the bible is the word of god inspired inerrant infallible you can't be a pastor elder or member of the church and deny the the infallibility of scripture and churches that allow that they are they that they swallow a poison pill if you will and then there's a threat a warning if you won't wake up verse three second part if you won't wake up i'll come like a thief you will not know the hour I will come against you. This is serious. God said, you know, remember the passage in Romans? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, if God is against us, it doesn't matter who's for us. You want to make sure God is for you. It doesn't matter who's against you if God is for you. And then it says, and there's a reward for those who overcome. In verses 4 through 6, listen, yet you have still a few names in Sardis. This is hopeful. There are a handful. There's a small, there's a little remnant. A hand, there's a handful of faithful People who have not soiled their garments, they will walk with me in white. They're worthy. One who conquers will be clothed in white garments. The one who overcomes, the Greek word for Nike, Nike. The one who overcomes, this is repeated in every one of these letters. The one who is victorious. The one who conquers, the, the, vic, the victor. The one who overcomes, he will walk with me in white the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He says at least three things in his section. Overcomers will be clothed in white. There's a, there's a, um, there's a significance to this. The overcomers will not be blotted out of the book of life. There's a cultural significance to this. Overcomers will be confessed by Christ. We often say, will you confess Christ? The real issue is, will Christ confess you? 
Overcomers are those who persevere. The, the scriptures teach this. Listen, 1 John 5. Whatever's born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. He who, is, who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Believers will be overcomers. They will persevere. They will be victorious. They will be in a slugfest, but they will win. It's like sometimes, have you ever watched, like, the, let's pretend that the Tigers are in a pennant race. And, they're, and they are, let's say they are having a really bad inning. And the bases are loaded. And it's just, a, they're getting shelled. But the beautiful thing about baseball is, in a baseball game, that thing can change. You can have a really bad inning, and you can win the game. Am I right? And this is true here. We will see bad innings, but we will overcome. We will be victorious if we are in Christ. Will you boldly confess him? Will, will he confess you? And then notice it says there are few. There's a faithful remnant. Don't, don't expect to be in the majority. You don't need to be in the majority. You don't need lots of people. You just need Christ to confess you and a handful of other faithful Christians. And don't expect to avoid suffering. There's no promise of that. And don't think you can be silent and neutral. That's not how it works. What is this white garment thing? Some of the people of Sardis participated in a pagan ritual in which they dressed in white and paraded down the street cutting themselves. And if you were sprayed with the blood, they said you had the favor of the goddess Sybil. Jesus is saying if you are pure and your garments remain white and you don't get involved in that worldly compromise or that pagan, those pagan rituals, you'll walk with me. You'll have my favor. There, what about this name blotted out matter? Some have said, oh, if it says my, your name won't be blotted out of the book of life, it's, it's an evidence that you could lose your salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this passage is teaching. It's not even in a section of warning or threatening. It's in a section of promise. It's important to understand what, what it means. There's a cultural piece to this. There was the curse of Minim. During the same era, there was a, there was a curse called the curse of Minim. The Jews in the ancient world prayed 18 benedictions every day and then added this curse. May the Nazarenes and the Minim suddenly die and may their names be blotted out of the book of life. And this was common there, this huge synagogue, evidence of the, of the dominance of the, of the Jewish synagogue. This is a threat they would have heard over and over ago, over and over again. And Jesus is saying, you trust me, I will never allow your name to be blotted out of the book of life. So can I ask you, who is your king? There was emperor worship in Sardis, an inscription found to Domitian calling Domitian the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Did you know that? The Bible says in Matthew 10, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. I say it like this, and I know I'm an extrovert, so maybe it isn't fair, but I say it like this. Put the name of Jesus in play in your conversation every day. Just get him in there. Watch what happens when with reverence you put the name of Jesus in your conversation. Don't ever let yourself, don't go through life and people don't know you're a Jesus follower. In conclusion, right, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You gotta, you gotta wonder, did they listen? Did this dead church come back to life? 
There's no evidence in the Bible they did. Of course, we're at the end of the Bible here. We're toward the end. But there is some historic evidence that suggests that they actually had a revival in Sardis. Because in church history, there was a pastor that followed the Apostle John, whose name was Melito, and he was the pastor for several decades after this letter, according to church tradition, according to reliable church history, multiple sources. And he was faithful, and he was fruitful. As a, as a matter of fact, historically, the, the historic evidence is that Melito, that the pastor of the church in Sardis, whose name was Melito, wrote the first commentary on the book of Revelation. This was a contemporary of John, right, who wrote a commentary on Revelation. This is, here's a little interesting aside, and he believed in a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. I just wanted to share that piece right there. Sometimes people wonder, well, he was a contemporary of John, and he believed that a 1,000 years, the passage about the millennium was a literal 1,000-year reign, which also makes the, the bulk of Revelation 6 through 19 futurist, which is a critical thing if you're studying the Bible. Nonetheless, here was this, when the, when the remains of the church were discovered in the ruins, and it was named the Church of St. John, Melito is referred to as the second bishop of Sardis. So what is that telling you? He was the successor of the messenger of the Church of Sardis. There's reason to believe that the Church of Sardis had a revival and came back to life. And if that church can have a revival and come back to life, you too can have a revival and come back to life. You as an ear to hear. Let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me, God. Pray with me. God, send your Spirit to blow on the coals of life that remains and stir us into flame for you. Send a revival in our hearts, Lord. Send a revival to our children. Send a revival to our families. Send a revival to our church, God. We'll confess you. We'll repent. We'll be faithful to the apostolic doctrine. Send us life, I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. God bless you.